Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host. In this installation of our program, we will be speaking um, with Lewis Aaron and Karen Starr regarding their publication, Psychotherapy for the People, Toward a Progressive Psychoanalysis, Rutledge 2013. And this interview takes place before a live audience, which is a a new road taken for New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, We uh, spoke with them at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies in New York City, and before a crowd of perhaps 100 and change of analysts from many stripes who were happy to hear the interview and also get in on the act. So I have a plethora of co-hosts. I did have them name themselves so you'll know who's who and who's saying what. We also want to encourage people with this interview in particular because the book is sort of pivotal and offering a new uh, paradigm of the um, how psychoanalysis in America took such a conservative turn. We would love to have people write in on the webcast and their experience of it. And the authors, Aaron and Starr, are also going to be checking in and responding to posts. So if you've ever wanted to speak with either of them, this is your opportunity. Upcoming will be Robert Stollero in January with his book, World Affectivity and Trauma. And I will have a co-host on that interview. It'll be Josie Oppenheim will be joining me to, to interview Dr. Stallero. So without further ado, as the authors are introduced in full during the live interview itself, let's sally forth and see what you think about new books in psychoanalysis in front of a crowd. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for coming out. I'm Jacqueline Bersini, and I'm with the Student Association of CMPS and NYGSP. Uh, and we are delighted to have you all tonight. Um, so we've been honoring students and candidates who have gotten nominated for the Gadebo Awards uh, or have won the Gadebo Award. And so tonight we are delighted to be honoring Tracy Morgan for her um, uh, new media podcast, New Books and Psychoanalysis. And so she's been doing a lot of interviews tonight. Um, before I uh, do more of an introduction, I do want to do a plug for our conference that's coming up on December 7th. So, um, so this year's conference um, is going to be the Repetition Compulsion Revisited. And so, um, it's going to be repetitive. (laughs) So, um, it's going to be repetitive from a neuroscience perspective, from a Fun conference with a lot of great thinker 
Um, and when you speak, I ask that um, we're going to hand out mics at that point. This will be about 50 minutes in from now. Um, and then you say your name and then ask your question because, you know, why shouldn't you have your name out there? Unless you really don't want to and then, you know, you're free to not say your name. Um, so I'm going to do a traditional new books and psychoanalysis interview, um, but in a skirt, not in my pajamas. Um, and we'll go perhaps until 9 p.m., 9.15. Um, when we're ready to stop, I'm going to need to ask for a little bit of cooperation, which is that um, I'm also speaking to an audience, not right now, but think about it, like when you listen to new books and psychoanalysis, if you do at the end, we say thanks to the authors, we look forward to you getting back to us when we write another book, hopefully not as long as this one, and because <laughs> and, um, that's all this last read, and, uh, and then we'll say something about who the next uh, interviewee will be, and then I'll just say, you know, this is your devoted host, Tracy Morgan, signing off till next time. At that point, we're done. Mr. Cahill will do whatever he does with the recording, and we can all get up and go to the next room and, uh, you know, have wine and cheese and... Uh, and relax. Um, I'm supposed to put in a word from our sponsors. Um, the Student Association and I would like to thank Joseph Avalone, or Avalone, I don't know, Avalone, owner of Summit Investigative Service in Forest Hills for providing us with food. Uh, Blake Birmingham, Director of Operations at Mixed Beverage LLC, provided the wine. I also hear there may be something like a skinny margarita, or some <laughs> such created by buyer for Nicki Minaj. And the mention of Nicki Minaj on this webcast will diversify the listening audience in ways you can't even imagine. Um, what they'll do with this, who knows? Okay, so <laughs> now I'd like to interview, uh, an interview. I'd like to introduce and then, then interview uh, uh, Drs. Lewis Aaron and Dr. Karen Starr. Um, they are the authors of. Can you guys hold up? My mind is ripped to shreds because it's heavy and I can tear out chapters. I've been reading it for three months. So, um, this is their new book, um, A Psychotherapy for the People Toward Progressive Psychoanalysis, published by Rutledge, 2013. Dr. Aaron, uh, as many of you may know, he uh, runs uh, the postdoc. Um, the NYU Postdoc and Analytic Institute housed in the university, Freud would be very pleased, um, where I believe primarily psychologists study the impossible profession. Yes? And um, Dr. Aaron once ran Division 39 at the APA, yeah? and um, he has co-authored countless articles and books, among them A Meeting of Minds. Dr. Starr is a winner of the Ruth Stein Prize, and she's a candidate, uh, still a candidate? Okay, a candidate of the postdoc. Um, an author of what sounds like a fascinating book, Repair of the Soul, Metaphors of Transformation in Judaism and Psychoanalysis, both maintain private practices in New York City. Um, I just have a quick thought before we get things underway. I usually don't see people's facial expressions when I interview them. It is, uh, as I said, me, the pajamas, my dining room table, a lot of this stuff here, and I don't have... I don't usually make eye contact, and I was thinking about how interesting it is that the first time I'm doing a live interview where eye contact is involved, I have two relational analysts here. And um, I'm used to a, sort of a one-person model where if you lay on the couch and we don't make eye contact. Um, and, and if there was just one of you, I was going to bring up the couch. <laughs> I do couples treatment, I don't do that. So. <laughs> how it goes, and I wonder if a good interview is just 
girls. And, um, <laughs> so, um, and I have about 50 questions. So, so why don't we um, get ourselves started? The first question that I ask um, everyone that I've ever interviewed is um, what uh, prompted the writing of, uh, of this book? These are ideas that you have spent a lot of time thinking about for many years, and he and I share an interest in Ju the intersection of Judaism and psychoanalysis. Um, Lou was one of my community members um, when I was working on my dissertation, which is, ended up becoming Repair of the Soul. And uh, he invited me one day to write this book with him. And uh, to really just help articulate ideas that he's been thinking about for a long time, but also that drew upon both of our interests in the Jewish roots and the Jewish influences of psychoanalysis and how that reverberates even unto today in this series. Um, let me add a little bit to that. First of all, thank you for inviting us to do this. And thanks for having us here. Thanks for accepting. Um, you know, I think that over the last uh, many years, I've been very focused on psychoanalytic education. And as I think everyone here is very well aware, psychoanalysis has just changed enormously in terms of its status in our culture and what that means in terms of who's becoming a psychoanalyst, how one becomes a psychoanalyst, the nature of psychoanalytic institutes, organizations. and. Um, I got very interested in the history of that, in terms of how the history of, of our culture and the history of the shifts has affected the profession and the education of the profession. As part of that, the history that Karen is mentioning is the history of trauma, immigration, Jewish culture, and the way in which that, that affected us. Um, okay, so now I have to look at you Time. <laughs> How strange it is. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, first question I had that I wanted to ask, wanted to pose was: um, in this book, there seems to be an argument for a blurring of the boundaries between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, which makes it a very interesting book uh, for modern analysts. I think, in, in many respects, as well. Um, I get the sense that the relational project is at times um, deemed unpsychoanalytic. Uh, for example, um, Arnold Richard, among others, uh, comes to mind with his ongoing fights with Stephen Mitchell. Um, what role, if any, um, would you like to have this book play in addressing um, the demotion of the relational position? Great questions. Well, let me start at the beginning, and, and I'll see if I can follow Spotman's and just keep talking. And Good. See where I go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that well, the first thing I'd say is, you know, those, those fights between Arnie and Steve are over. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish yeah. I wish Steve was still around because those were great fights, and it would be interesting to see where they, where they landed. I would I would actually not go along with the premise of the question, which is that I don't think our effort is to um, not have a differentiation between psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. I think what we're most interested in is 
eliminating them as binary oppositions. But it's very different to eliminate them as binary oppositions, one being defined by, as not what the other is. It's very different from saying that there's no difference between them. So for example, you grow up a couch. And I think that a treatment done on a couch is different from a treatment done face to face. It's different from a treatment where you're walking in the park. It's different from where you're on treadmills together. I think that seeing someone four times a week is different from seeing someone once a week. And I wouldn't want to minimize those differences. I think those differences need to be studied, that they're different for different patients, different analysts, different dyads. So I'm, I'm not interested in eliminating difference. What we were really interested in when we were writing is the way in which psychoanalysis came to define itself as not psychotherapy. It defined itself by what it wasn't, a definition by opposition. And so everything about psychoanalysis was identified, this is post-World War II, in America largely, with many immigrants fleeing Hitler, at a time that America was very powerful, when psychoanalysis was becoming powerful, within psychiatry, which was becoming powerful, within medicine, a time that it was 93% and more men, men more modeling themselves on surgeons, finding themselves in a powerful, elite medical specialty. And they defined themselves in opposition to psychotherapy, which was nurturing, relationship, support, care. But they didn't want to provide care. They were doctors. They were going to provide treatment, and it was going to be science. It wasn't going to be magic or just a relationship. So it's one thing to deconstruct a binary and say these things are not oppositional, that there is a range. It's another thing to eliminate differences between them, and I wouldn't want to do that. The second part of your question, if I followed it, had to do with the place of relational psychoanalysis, and that's intimately tied to the first because in the original definition, by original I mean not Freud's, I mean the definition of the early 1950s, by definition, psychoanalysis couldn't be relational because relational is what was put into psychotherapy. Psychotherapy was about a supportive relationship for patients who were not analyzable and therefore needed care. The analysts were going to provide the treatment. So by definition, psychoanalysis couldn't be relational in those days. As that dichotomy is deconstructed, there's room for, for relationality in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. The authors an email probably a couple weeks ago when I was maybe a month ago when I was reading the book and I was thinking to myself um, about halfway through it um, I was confronted with um, this argument about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and that there seems to be this split and this, this wondering uh, maybe I don't know if others wonder um, who work in this field but am I doing am I uh, doing psychoanalysis yet? Is this psychoanalysis? How do I know when I reach psycho a psychoanalytic moment? Um, I think somebody, I don't know who it was, wrote uh, that if you can do psychoanalysis a few minutes each se session, you're doing well. I forget what analyst that was, but that made me feel better. I realized the question is, that the, am I doing analysis yet? It's kind of like a, a, a small headache, a small chronic headache. Um, 
and so I experienced the book as a softening of some kind of sick self-attack or a strong superego, you know, like you're not there yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I was thinking of being modern, like most of us see patients, you know, I'll see a patient once a month and you know, only tolerate that much contact. Um, so it was really validating um, to, to read this. But I'm wondering, I mean, I found the argument to be very, um, very seductive and liked it, but it was it your intention to loosen things up for clinicians um, who may be riddled with this kind of shame? Absolutely, and actually that was one of the main motivations, you know, one of the, the ideas that, one of the pressures that sparked this book was, you know, about psychoanalytic education. We're training candidates to see patients three, four times a week. We're requiring a personal analysis minimum of three times a week. And it's years and years of training, as you know very well. Um, and then when you graduate with a certificate in psychoanalysis and you're a psychoanalyst, how many patients do you end up seeing three times a week, lying on the couch or not? Um, most people end up seeing patients much less frequently than three times a week. Even if, you know, there was a survey done uh, by Columbia Psychoanalytic where they require four times a week you know, training cases. And a very tiny percentage of the people post-graduation who were graduated as psychoanalysts actually did what we would call, you know, what could be called psychoanalysis proper, which is four times a week on the couch. So in fact, the question is, what are we doing? Um, the question is, you know, will, are we training people to do, what are we training people to do? You know, you're, you're putting so much time and effort in, what, what is a psychoanalyst? And we're claiming in this book that a, psycho, that a psychoanalysis is a way of looking at the world, it's a way of listening to patients deeply, thinking dynamically, and whether you're seeing patients three times a week or two times a week, or like who said on the treadmill, you still could be doing psychoanalysis. Um, we also look at broadening. We, we really look to bring um, this, what had become a very rigid definition, arbitrarily rigid definition of psychoanalysis that was you know, really pretty much started in the 1950s in America. Um, we try to really look at the radical origins of psychoanalysis. Look at Freud's progressive vision. His vision of bringing psychoanalysis to the masses, opening free clinics, treating the poor, um, all things that in America in the 1950s were, you know, dissociated onto psychotherapy and the social workers. There's a kind of quote here actually from you guys on this topic. We would argue that one is using well-developed <coughs> psychoanalytic ideas to work with a patient less frequently than applying psychoanalysis in that way is just as much a utilization of psychoanalysis as any other approach. Well, what, what I would, the only way I would want to complicate it and, and spin it around a little bit is that, in a certain way, I think that it actually calls on us, in terms of training and educating psychoanalysts, to be more rigorous and, in some ways, not looser, but even um, more disciplined and more rigorous. And, and it's a harder job in the sense that, to the degree that so much depends on how much is the individual analyst and that individual patient, what's going on between them, 
to the degree that that becomes a new factor that wasn't studied in the classical model, because the classical model assumed a neutral anonymous analyst, where analysts were just about interchangeable. To the degree that we have to factor in the subjectivity and intersubjectivity of both partners, the learning of psychoanalysis has become more complicated than it used to be. In addition to the fact that we have such a plural, plurality of theories that now you're not only studying many theories and having to sort out what really works, what theory works for you, you're also having to sort out how it fits who you are and how you express yourself as an analyst with a particular kind of patient. In a certain way, I think that makes the demands of analytic training and analytic education, we need to be even more rigorous. So just as a quick example in terms of the questions you've asked, and it's come up so much about numbers, I would be against any analytic training only allowing once a week, as much as an analytic institute that required only three or four times a week. And the same thing about the couch or the chair. It seems to me students today have to learn how to work with people once a week, three times a week, four times a week, on the couch, on the chair, on the treadmill, and learn for themselves what works for them, what works with particular patients, and really figure out what theory makes sense given their practice with who they are. That's a lot to learn. That's, that's a complicated task. And it means in a certain way we need to be more rigorous, not less. Um, you just uh, said something about um, the, something about, uh, perhaps it was, um, Mutual intersubjectivity, the mutual subjectivities, right, of the, of the two parties. So I have a question about that um, because here we're not standing. Uh, we're not really thinking about um, the subjectivity of the analyst very much um, in, uh, in our work um, in terms of how it is that we ourselves are um, a part of, of the picture. And so I have a question. And it's a little little long. And there's a backup to it. So I'll just read it out. Okay. Um, I sense that born of a desire to solidify the relational turn, the book at times presumes certain overarching changes to psychoanalysis. There are moments in which I read the book and I thought, that's not the psychoanalysis I know. In writing about basic model technique, right from back in the day, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I didn't have to do that, thank goodness. Um, um, the authors write, contrast this uh, with psychoanalysis in our postmodern constructivist age, in which the nature of the analyst's authority and the teacher's and supervisor's authority has become less clear. In another sentence, we read that psychoanalytic theory and practice, quote, are highlighting issues of multiplicity of the self and the connection of multiple self-states to fragmentation and dissociation. Such statements gave me cause to pause. Um, having just completed 10 years of training here at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, um, the analyst's authority is not something, for instance, that we think much about, uh, nor is multiplicity or the idea of multiple self-states. And I sense these ideas are born from the attention paid to postmodernism, um, which I appreciate, but many schools of psychoanalysis aren't working through a postmodern lens. So in the book, there's so, uh, there's moments where there's this assumption. I, I, I thought, you know, for moderns or Lacanians, um, the analyst is responsible for keeping the treatment going, right? Uh, there's no co-creation. The buck stops with the analyst. The analyst is working to resolve the resistances. The analyst's subjectivity is ultimately, um, for certain approaches, not so interesting. 
It's not by sense of the pains, minds. Contemporary ego analysts, there's like three left. Um, or Bolas, or Green, or Anzu, or McDougall have been too much interested in this mode of thinking. So when making statements such as the aforementioned, um, the relational perspective is made a bit normative. I would have made more of a Like, what's up? What's going on? We're back. Thought? Uh, just a very short thought, which is that it's interesting because at um, I, you know, the relational approach started off as counter-normative, and at postdoc, it's the biggest track right now. It's the most popular. It actually has become kind of the normative position in a way, even though we have three tracks. Uh, the relational is by far kind of the most establishment. Yeah, look, I will elaborate on a little Please more. Please <laughs> there, was, there was a day when Steve Mitchell said to me, and when, when I said to him, what's, what are we going to do if the relational position becomes dominant? He said, well, we'll just have to start a new track. <laughs> but I, I think we're that just, the <laughs> Well, you know, that, that I was going to say something about, about the moderns, but let me say a little bit more elaborate on Karen, and I'll come back to the modern. The, the, um, the, it's very, very interesting at NYU because we, the relational track is, in a certain way, the dominant track in the sense of offering the most course, students attracted to it for the most students, supervisees. But that's not what's most interesting. What's most interesting is that as you look at the reading lists, the syllabi of the courses across all the tracks, including the Freudian track, the, object, the, the relational track, the interpersonal track, and the independent track, the course readings are more and more drawing on the same sources, more and more similar. And you're absolutely right. There is no Lacanian position there. We offer, we offer one course on Lacan, which runs once in a while. Um, so that really doesn't exist there. The community is Freudian, personal, relational, and independent. And there is more and more of a mainstream. And the mainstream is a relational, intersubjective mainstream. So I think you're absolutely right. In, in regard to, and of course, you know, my, my personally, my audience that I usually speak to is the IR audience, which is relational group, and Division 39, which is a largely relational group. So I think you're totally right. That's who I write for. That's my audience. Now, in terms of modern, I would say this. Uh, Spotnitz's ideas, I think, were clearly ahead of, of his time. And there's a great reason um, for modern analysts to be more integrated now with the mainstream of psychoanalysis. There are, you know, what, when you say that they don't pay much attention to the subjectivity of the analyst, I would question that because, for example, just the idea that there's a lot of attention paid to the use of counter-transference is a form of subjectivity. It may not be the way relational people are using it right now. What's the difference in your mind between relational therapy Wait, I'm doing it. Hold on. I know your faculty, but I'm a graduate now. But you're going to have a chance. You're going to have your chance. go back to what I was suggesting is that I think there are many things. The use of counter-transference is one area where he was ahead of his time, but there are many others. Um, the kinds of questions he was asking about what's going on in the minds of other people is something that's commonly used today 
not only in family therapy, but, in, but among many relational and intersubjective analysts, is all kinds of things in terms of what we would have called joining the resistances that are now common ground among many analytic <coughs> approaches. But because it was so much not part of the mainstream for so many decades, there is a way now in which I think the moderns have to catch up and rejoin what's happening in the mainstream. So when you point out that in a certain way the book makes assumptions about what's happening in the mainstream that don't apply to the modern, I think you're absolutely right. But that's a, that's a, that's another bridge that can be crossed. Mm -hmm. that would be a very big loss 
would be to give up what we know about intrapsychic developments and to give up the focus on the internal world and do a binary flip where now everything is external and everything is trauma. And that's that's the danger. That's something we have to be very careful about. Yeah, I, I, but in our book, <clears throat> Dr. You know, the problem is that um, most hist if you if the students taught a history of psychoanalysis, it's always a history of ideas. As if you're just looking at, you know, what are the developments of the concepts in psychoanalysis without any consideration of what the cultural and economic uh, social context was surrounding its development. And so I understand your question, but our goal was really to correct um, an imbalance in how we look at psychoanalysis by incorporate by by, look, by offering actually what ended up being a cultural history, which was really looking at what were the external forces in the development of in the traumatic development of psychoanalysis, in the way we were looking at psychoanalysis like a patient doing the psychoanalysis of psychoanalysis. It, it may be worth saying, because a lot of people may not have read the book, so just to give a, a quick sentence or two about this, to remember that the early analysts surrounding Freud were almost all, to a person, Jewish refugees who had fleed Poland, Eastern Europe, and had recently come to Vienna, either they themselves or their parents. As Jews in Vienna, they could not get jobs in the hospitals. They couldn't get jobs in the universities. They were working in private practice, not because that was elite. They were working in private practice because that was the only way they could eke out a, li a living. Um, they, they flee that persecution, and then many of them, or the next generation, flee Hitler. And then psychoanalysis in America is again dramatically affected by a group of immigrants fleeing persecution who were traumatized and were not in any position, even in their analyses, even when analyzed by other immigrants, other, other <coughs> refugees, were not able to deal with the trauma of the Holocaust, were not able to deal with the trauma of immigration. They were in a new country where they barely spoke the language. They often came with no money. Many of them, their families had been wiped out. And this was, they just couldn't deal with it. And so there was a phase of, a very important phase of the establishment of psychoanalysis, both in Europe and in America. And I think we have to now see that psychoanalysis has its origins in immigration, poverty, prejudice, racism, homophobia, misogyny, trauma. Um. Um, but nevertheless, um, 
But it's in the post-war period that it seems to me, from what I know about the history of psychoanalysis, uh, and that just makes me think about spotting, there's, we went two ways. One way we went, which is to the New York Psychoanalytic, Hartman, Chris, Monsignor, et cetera. The other way, though, was um, at pretty much the same time, we see Spotnitz, uh, Frieda from Reitman, Harold Searles, Harris Jack Sullivan, um, and they turned their attention to schizophrenia and the psychosis. Um, in this book, I don't think we heard as much about this other vein. This vein that led analysts to Austin Riggs, Chestnut Hill, the Jewish board, or Spotnitz. How do how you account for, for this impulse, and where, what happened to it? I mean, because we can all define ourselves in opposition to New York psychoanalytic, it's fabulous, strong, and really easy. And there are, how many of psychologists are left? It's like Fred Bush, there's one, you know, there's, not, there's almost no one. But all these analysts really were working with, with psychosis. Yeah? I think the, the first thing to say is that, with the exception of Spotnitz, who you put into that group, those become the forerunners of relational psychoanalysis. So when, and that's one of the reasons, in other words, we're describing the mainstream, but our, our mainstream of relational really has its roots in the interpersonal tradition, as well as in the British object relations tradition. So in the American version of that, it is in fact Sullivan from, from Reichman. Um, and and that that those Not the, Searles. and Searles, Which you know Searles, I'll tell you a story that's I'm relevant to this. <laughs> the story I can tell you about Searles is that when Greenberg and Mitchell wrote the, the object relations book, classic 1983 work, Searles was very hurt that he wasn't mentioned, and he called Steve. Now Searles was Steve Mitchell's hero, and Steve couldn't believe he had left him out. And so he, he was very apologetic. And he wondered, why did I leave Searles out? Like, how come he didn't? Because he, he was hugely influ influential to Steve. And what Steve realized was that it was, it was a product of his having written the book with Jay by schools of thought. That it went from the Freudians to the egosexualists <coughs> and the personalists to the Fairbairns to the Winnicott. And that Searles didn't fit neatly even in the interpersonal. And that because he didn't fit neatly in the schools, he wasn't on the agenda. Um, but I did an article some years back, you may know, where I compare Searles and Ferenczi, which I had the chance to work with Searles. And he had never read Ferenczi because of just what you're bringing up. He said he was taught that Ferenczi didn't work with psychotic patients, so he wouldn't read it. But of course, Ferenczi did work with psychotic patients and was a leader in working with people that other people considered unanalyzable. When Searles heard that, he was eager to go back and read Ferenczi. He loved the article, but by then he was he was deteriorating. And, wow. Yeah. Um, it was just such an honor to talk to him at all, you know. I wasn't around. <laughs> I uh, was thinking about um, two analysts writing history. It's very interesting. I'm not trained as a historian secretly. Are you? No. Okay. Just wanted to check. Um, because I was thinking about what is it, uh, what happens when analysts um, um, turn our attention, as we often do, you know, 
with the paintings in the room, for instance. I mean, you know, or people are doing many different things. But when analysts uh, write history, um, what I guess I want to ask: What historians do you like? Who are you drawn to as a historian? Um, who is your, your model? Um, I know that you know you talk about Michelin Greenberg being influenced by Isaiah Berlin. Oh my God, that was funny. Um, to, I have no idea, but who who do you, who do you love? Um, who did you draw from? Uh, well, from my end, my my greatest interest was um, in the area of Jewish studies. And we drew heavily from Sandra Gilman, uh, from Daniel Boyarin, uh, from yeah. Celia Brickman and Yerushalmi. Yerushalmi, yes. Yeah. I mean, these, these are largely actually not historians per se, but cultural historians, right. people writing in cultural studies. Now, now, I think we both read <coughs> a lot of history and we're both interested in, in general in history, but I, I think for this, it really had to do with this cultural, socio-political angle. Now, within psychoanalysis, there are, you know, there, there are start many. I mean, psychoanalysts have always written history, um, but I think of books like George McCarry's book as as being an important historical source book. Um, But a lot of the psychoanalytic histories are also not written by psychoanalysts, right? Think about Hale, right. Book, obviously, right. and the which we after, after Freud left, which is John Burns' collection, which I, I edited, I edited, I edited, yeah, that's a good <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I Uh, on psychoanalysis. Um, 
I'm thinking about the Jessica Benjamin Neurogen and the postdoc there trained in other disciplines before they became analysts. Um, and I wonder, is there a risk of bringing too much culture into the consulting room and so diminishing the interpsychic? Um, for instance, the tenets of social work, you know, the respect for cultural difference, looking at the impact of the environment and the patient. Um, is that coming to take some precedence in the relational turn? I mean, I, I interviewed Muriel, you know, with culture in mind, and it was a book that I thought I wasn't sure. Um, I was, I was looking for the, the interpsychic a little bit. I was looking for it, and uh, it wasn't so clear. So, there. What do you think about that? I, I, you know, I understand the danger. You'll just keep answering. I understand the concern. But I would go back to the main theme of the book, which is deconstructing binaries. And I think that as soon as we pose the question in terms of that one will take away from the other, that that's exactly the kind of oppositional thinking that we want to try and find a third to get beyond. So as soon as you're positioning it as will the external take away from the internal, it's that kind of opposition. I, I think any good clinician needs to be thinking both about intrapsychic forces, dynamics, the unconscious, unconscious fantasy, and they need to be thinking about the place of culture and society. And to think that a clinician could do one and not the other, or that one takes away from the other, I would want to reverse all of that and say one enriches the other. And it's a matter of education and thinking and training to be able to do that. I agree. I, I can't. I don't look at it at all as binary thinker. <laughs> I really don't look at it all as one taking away the other. I really, I just couldn't think of working any other way. But considering the all of the factors, internal, external, intrapsychic, um, you know, I, I couldn't work any other way. <laughs> about the controversial discussions 
and just how important the controversial discussions are. These are the debates that were staged between Anfroy and Mellon Klein during World War II, and how important they are in the history of psychoanalysis and the debates between the Americans and the British. And the historian said she had been working on digging up archives about the controversial discussions, and that the candidates at the Institute during the controversial discussions had never heard of them and didn't know what they were. They were and nobody outside of the British psychoanalytic even knew what the controversial discussions were. So this idea that our trivial battles between one school and another has any long-term effect on the history of the world is, I think, really absurd. Psychoanalytic, we, we, have, we have nothing to worry about about thinking we're mainstream. There is, we are so not close to being mainstream. Sorry.
is a pragmatic decision. As a profession, we can define psychoanalysis in any way we believe serves the interest of our community and the wider public. There is no true definition of psychoanalysis, the author's right. There is only the manner in which we construct the definition. So it sounds like a very worthy project, and yet I felt uneasy. Um, I wondered about my not fully embracing the argument, and I'll tell you about my disease to, to some degree. Um, and I would like to hear your thoughts. Um, I wonder, um, for instance, I don't think about dissociation. Okay, I I think you know about repression, unconsciousness. I think really differently. I I, I don't think in a two-person model. I just don't. You know, it's not me. Like I'm not like you know. I just don't. It's not how I've been analyzed. It's not how I've uh, been trained. It's not how I've been supervised. Um, so I have some reservations. Like I like your idea of it expanding what it is to work, what it means to work analytically. Um, but I'm not so comfortable with the disregard for the drives um, that I sense in, in the total argument. Um, and I feel tempted to jump up your bandwagon. And just as you were saying before, like you, know, this, you sort of you, you use this example. You guys write we're on the Titanic, the ship is sinking, the ship called psychoanalysis is sinking, and we're rearranging the chairs. But while I have to give up the, um, my interest in the drives um, to get on board. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was not convinced by the book. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> it, to get on board which ship is the question. It, 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 oh. To get on board the ship of psychoanalysis. I hope that ship has lots of levels and rooms with lots of different theories. And there would be room. Room. Yeah, <laughs> there would be, you know, there would be room on that ship for all kinds of theories. Um, to get on a ship called, you know, relational psychoanalysis. Even there, I would argue there's much more room for diversity than you're than you're expressing. For example. Jay Greenberg certainly considers himself a relational analyst. I consider him a relational analyst. He has written a whole book arguing that you can't have a theory without drives. Um, Steve Mitchell himself, although drives became the thing that were excluded from his relational theory, nevertheless he writes very clearly that if you define drives the way modern analytic thinkers were, modern meaning contemporary, not modern spotlights, small yeah. So, for example, he mentions Kernberg or Joe Sandler and their drive theories. If, and he says that their drive theories have been so transformed that there's nothing in them that would contradict even Sullivan's reluctance to accept any drives. So, I think we get to a much, we're getting to a discussion that requires much more uh, nuance of exactly what is the onboard what and exactly what's meant by drive. And it's a complicated discussion. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was in the book when you write with ego psychologists. You know, you really say, you know, they rejected the death drive, right? And something that you know here at CMPS we embrace very wholeheartedly. And in, <laughs> anyone else? Did you this week? So wait, okay. In the book, you in the book. Kernberg is quoted, um, who suggests that this rejection is a, a manifestation of a general tendency in ego psychology to downplay the primitivity of sexuality and aggression. And this is Kernberg, they're quoting here um, in the book. Quote, a sanitized version of Freud was suitable. He keeps looking like he knows what I'm going to say. 
Almost, but you handle that. So you're going to sleep. The death drive is taking over. Okay. <laughs> anyway, the quote, the quote from Herbert is a sanitized version of Freud was suitable. Um, it should be two or four acceptance by the conventional American culture of its day. Could it be said that at times the relational position with its attention to infant research attachment and then attachment and trauma is also offering perhaps a more palatable version of the human condition and hence we can accord some of this pocket, some of the like everybody running toward the relational with a with, with a domestication perhaps? Something's being, uh, my sense is something, we're losing a little something. No. Thank you. Um, I thought you asked this question. Uh, and, if, and if you don't like the question, we're talking about that too. <laughs> well, okay. I'll, I'll say two things. First, I completely agree every theory is defensive in something else. There's, there's, every theory is a compliment for mention. It expresses something and it hides something. It communicates something and it keeps something hidden. So there's no theory that wouldn't have that. But but I think that you're I think you in a certain way read the book with the wrong preoccupation. The book isn't about relational psychoanalysis. It's not there's there's almost not a chapter in it about relational. And we, we didn't even discuss relational in any in any systematic way. The book is about psychoanalysis in general and contemporary psychoanalysis which we do think has been largely influenced by relational, but it's not a book about relational. The book is a book about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis <coughs> to the people. In a certain way, I, from so many of the questions mm -hmm. that, are, that are geared towards the relational, that's not, I think, what we really had in mind in writing. Yes, like I read this book as a, um, a it's, it struck me as, because where it ends up in the last chapter, it's a, you're right, we talk about, we, we do, it is, it's by no means a polemic for relational psychoanalysis. That was not at all our intention. There are quite a number of pieces about relational psychoanalysis, especially when we talk about um, the importance of recognizing our own vulnerability. Um, and because that plays such a big part of the thinking right now in relational psychoanalysis, and where we talk about um, paradox and dialectic. Because, but we, we talk about that because it's so important to our idea about deconstructing binaries. Um, the, you know, we spend a lot of time on dialectics, and dialectics is something that relational psychoanalysis and theorizing spends a lot of time on. But we, we were actually very careful that it not be a polemic for relational right. because we're both writing in a certain way representing a community that is Freudian, relational, interpersonal, and independent. So we, we really tried to cover that. Actually, the last chapter that you mentioned, the two main stars of that chapter are Tom Ogden and Ellen Mack, neither of whom, although they've been influential in the relational work, neither of them identify themselves as relational. Mm -hmm. um, well, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I got to the end of the book, and I thought to myself, um, I read something here, I thought, this is a strange question. The return of the repressed, in my notes. Are you, meaning the authors, arguing that once we have, is, is, the, is relational analysis the kind of return of the repressed um, once we've worked through the impact of antisemitism on the thinking the field? So I do think that that is, is, a, is a, I, I felt that as a steady argument throughout, that what Freud, um, 
part of the argument, which I think is you know compelling, is that when Freud is um, developing, for instance, the uh, past, you know the theory of castration anxiety or or the Oedipal, he's having a deal um, with the. You know, I'll read a quote from the book. Um, it's, the authors write, "It's much easier to understand why Freud constructed the Oedipus complex as the nucleus of neurosis and castration anxiety as bedrock." when we realized that his people, Jews, were accused of being neurotic and perverse because of generations of incest, and that Jewish men were viewed by others and by themselves as castrated and effeminate because they were circumcised. In Freud's transformation, rather than Jews being incestuous, we all have edible desires. It is not Jews who, have cast, who have, are castrated, parenthetically circumcised. We all have castration anxiety. Rather than Jews being primitive and perverse, we all have these aspects of our unconscious. And I got a sense in the book that you know Freud was contending continuously with anti-Semitism. And it, you know, no, I'm not here to contest that. Um, but when we work through the, 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 this idea that Freud is um, interested in, in uh, sort of autonomy and independence um, and being a Jewish man and, and, and not being seen as hysterical, you know, and being independent and phallic and hard, right? Um, I don't know, I guess I'm... What's interesting, I mean, I'm trying to follow the flow of your, of your thinking as you're doing it. I think actually you're hitting on that what, I, th I do think this is the core of the book, and, and I think you're, you're, you're getting it right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't categorize that in terms of relational. I would categorize that, and I think the real heart of the book, this is about the intersection the interrelationship, the interinfluence of racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, misogyny. And what you're what you're what you're capturing in describing Freud in this way is about anti-Semitism, but it's also about the role of his need to be masculine, the projection of everything else onto feminine, the repudiation of femininity as what he calls bedrock. And in terms of what we were saying before about all of the other fields and disciplines and the impact of history, really what I was going to say is it's not history per se that's been the influence, it's largely been the field of feminist studies. I mean, if anything has had an impact on the world of psychoanalysis that Karen and I are coming from, the relational world, the NYU world, the contemporary psychoanalytic world, there is nothing like feminism that's affected psychoanalysis. And I think what you're reading is this is the impact of feminism, queer theory, Post-colonial studies—it's it's way beyond just postmodernism as a philosophical position, um, and, and that's that's the heart of it. Now, it is true, and here's, I'll come back to the relationality. It is true that the relational school, having evolved later, it evolved in, in the 1980s, was deeply influenced by feminism, queer theory, and postcolonial studies, and so there is that intersection. But, you feel 1968? Yeah, absolutely. That, well, that's, that's when Steve Mitchell and, and Jay Greenberg were undergraduates. That's when they were reading Nietzsche and fighting the Vietnam War. And absolutely, that is in the heart. Yeah. Yeah, I would, just to add to that, I think that um, you're actually touching on something that, so in answer, in answer to your question is that the return of the repressed. Um, certainly, in some way, that is our contention, because what we write about in the book is how the Jewish man in the virulent anti-Semitic society in which Freud and the early analysts lived was looked at as a woman. 
code, it was feminized. A Jewish man was considered not a real man. And so we write about how Freud worked very hard to represent himself and his theory as masculine and phallic and penetrating and um, uh, dissociated uh, the feminine. And this is, you know, so, and project, and it, we show how in the 1950s, when psychoanalysis was at the height of its power, again, psychoanalysis was seen as masculine and penetrating, and all that was feminine and relational and supportive was um, pushed onto psychotherapy. And so, yes, it, it is in a way, we're, we're looking at opening all of that up and looking at, um, what the reverberations are of, of this dissociation of the repudiation of feminine. I mean, Freud wrote that, that the bedrock of psychoanalysis is the repudiation of, psych of femininity, which means that um, men have to repudiate their desire to be, you know, men have to repudiate their femininity and women have to repudiate their desire to have a penis. Um, I think that we're just about at a point. People need to discharge here. So we're at a point now where um, I, I've, got, I've done a lot of questions. So we're going to open up to the audience. What we need to do is somehow pass a microphone around. I'm happy to... Um, yeah, you want to... Okay, great. Um, Ms. Rosian, you have your hand up first. I think I can talk pretty loud. Okay. No, but you need to be recorded. And what's your name? Recorded. My name is Lisa Rosina. So I was just wondering what you think about this. Um, we just read in class uh, an article by Freud, The Female Sexuality, and he talks about how the male has one sex organ, the penis, and the woman has two, the torus and the vagina. So in your book, you talk about the, the old female uh, healers who both get treatment and cure. So I was wondering if there's any connection with that, that because it seems like the women in the old days could provide treatment and care and cure, and that the men can only witness treatment, or that it's sort of been, what you thought about that? Well, we read it in the book that yes, originally, um, the majority of healers were women, um, but that as medicine became an established profession, women were shut out, and um, only men were allowed to be doctors. And as uh, we write about in the 1920s, especially with the, you know, when, when people first started out being doctors in America, um, anyone could be a doctor. It didn't require any particular training. With the Flexner Report in the 1920s, when um, it would, you know, the establishment of, of medical schools with real medical training happened, women were shut out, blacks were shut out, and it became a primarily white male profession. As antibiotics uh, came in and, and um, with the development of antibiotics, all of a sudden, doctors uh, and medicine like penicillin and various other things, all of a sudden, doctors could offer cure. They could actually do something to cure the patient. Whereas they weren't really interested before this in providing care and support, which the women, the women healers did both. 
they might help a woman deliver a baby and then they would come within and help her nurse the baby. The only, the only thing I would want to add to that is just to, to reinforce what I was saying before about feminism and to tie it back to your question about history. Because we got a lot. This is mine. We got a lot. Um, I am mine too. Is it? Yeah. Nice to meet Does that work? Yeah. Sure. Um, we relied very heavily on Barbara Aronach's studies. Barbara Aronach practiced a feminist historian. And she really was the one that we got this idea from of the split between treatment and care as something that was split gendered between men and women. And of course, we then related that to the way in which psychoanalysis defined itself as in opposition to psychotherapy, very much along the lines of what you're describing, what Barbara Ehrenreich was describing, as the split between treatment. Once doctors felt they could offer treatment, they didn't want to offer care. And then that's projected out onto women social workers. So I have, Alexa, can you, you have it? Okay, you have it. Um, say your name, please. I'm Pamela Armstrong-Manchus. So I have actually two comments. So first, um, it's just a comment and the other is a question. When you're talking about binaries, you're talking about intrapsychic culture, I thought, well, how did Freud understand, get to understand the intrapsychic? Well, it was from all of his readings of the culture. And he read everything. So maybe they're not too separate. Okay. So my question is, um, when we have these kinds of discussions and we talk about the definition of psychoanalysis, I notice that Roy's definition of psychoanalysis is never mentioned. What's always mentioned is frequency. So I just want to re-quote, I was going to say it by memory, but I think I'm going to quote, what Freud said, I get to the right paper, um, in 1914 in the history of the psychoanalytic movement. So he said, uh, any line of investigation which recognizes these two factors and he had just said what they were in the previous sentence, which is transference and resistance. So any line of investigation which recognizes these two factors, transference and resistance, and takes them as their starting point of its work, uh, as starting point of its work, has a right to call itself psychoanalysis, even though it arrives at results other than my own. I guess my first question is, why is that definition of Freud's never mentioned? And what do you all think about that definition? I, I, a, number, a number of things. First, I would, would hope, I encourage you to read the book. Uh, the book quotes the definition and discusses psychoanalysis, not at all in terms of frequency, the whole point of the book is that frequency was used as a way of dichotomizing something that, that is clearly the fact that you can do it once a week, twice a week, three times a week, four times a week shows that there's a continuum, and yet it was dichotomized into psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. So the whole point of the book is actually to re-examine that definition, and part of what we show is that in fact there's good empirical data 
to show that analytic therapists all do quite a lot in common and that there's a lot that holds us together as psychoanalysts that has nothing to do with frequency or the catch. So I, I do think that if you look at the book, you'll see that people do mention it. Um, in terms of one other thing, and then I'll, I'll stop, but the, uh, the, other, the chapter in particular that relates to what you're saying about how did Freud come to this idea about the intrapsychic versus the interpersonal. First of all, intrapsychic is not a word Freud ever used. If you look at the, the index of Freud's writings or group have search, Freud didn't call them intrapsychic. It was, it was um, Sullivan who used the word intrapsychic to refer to Kraepelin because his interpersonal was in opposition to Kraepelin. So this whole idea of intrapsychic wasn't the end. For that matter, Freud also didn't differentiate psychoanalysis from psychoanalytic therapy. That's not a distinction he had any interest in. It, that's all in America post-World War II. The history of all of this is traced in the book. Um, and, and finally, what we trace, which goes way beyond earlier than Freud, is that this idea of a one-person model or an intrapsychic model versus a two-person or field theory model is something that actually was the basis of the debate between Charcot and Bernheim, and that Freud was extremely familiar with this whole history and could not accept the point of view that um, one that you, that people influence each other all the time. This went against the grain of Freud because he was trying to distance himself from the shtetl where people influenced each other and life was with people. So he developed his model of interior of the mind with boundaries as a way of having a bounded mind rather than a relational mind. We trace the history of that pretty carefully too. So hopefully you get a chance to look at it. Uh, hi, I'm Jack Terrible opportunity not to hear you say a little something about that. 
Now, I'll tell you what I want you to say. Taking <laughs> <laughs> these two concepts of transference and, and resistance, my understanding of the relational approach is that there's no, no man is an island, and uh, there's no such thing as an analyst, like uh, Winnicott said, there's no such thing as a baby without a mother, there's no such thing as an analyst without a patient, and everything that happens in that world is created by the two parties in interaction. Everything is co-created. The patient's transference is co-created. The patient's resistance is, is co-created. And the analyst, uh, the analyst has a, a, a counter-transference, which may be objectively induced, may be subjectively due to his history, whatever it is. Now, I also want to say, uh, and I agree with what you said earlier, that modern analysts are very interested in the analyst subjectivity. Uh, however, and this is where we come to a kind of a, a defining point. My understanding is the way the relational people want to deal with all these issues is they want, if the analyst has some subjective issue that's contributing to what's going on in the treatment, he consults with the patient. He says that the patient is, is able, my understanding of the reading is, that the patient can see the analyst not only as well as the analyst can see the patient, but in the writing it often sounds like the patient can see the analyst without distortion, and the analyst is the one who's got some problems. Uh, now, we all recognize that analysts do have problems and bring them into the treatment but we would not assume that we can discuss these issues in a spirit of mutuality with our patients. Maybe because our patients are crazier, but very few of our patients, I live with this one, many of our patients are neither want that mutuality or are capable of that kind of mutuality. So our way of dealing with it, uh, and here I want to sound arrogant, is to uh, consult somebody else, to go to a supervisor, to go to a peer group. And my impression is that modern analysts do much more supervision well into their careers, get much more than any other group. Most of the faculty here, in my, I guess, it used to be in the case, still get supervision, still go for supervision. So the idea is that we think we have to bring this problem to somebody else who's not in that mix. Whereas the, so there's my two questions. What is psychoanalysis? What is relational psychoanalysis in relation specifically? But Spot had sometimes talked about uh, consulting the patient. Oh, yeah. Consulting the patient is okay, but it's not enough, and it's not something you can rely on. That's our point. Well, that's okay. I'm going to give you the, sh the short version on one foot, right? <laughs> um, the first thing I would say, is, this goes back to something I hinted at before when I said that uh, the different schools have more in common than they have separate from them. There are a core group of things that all analytic therapists do. We know this not only because their books say they do it and their articles say they do it. We know it because when they're assessed by outside researchers, it's, it's observed that they do it. The manuals that they devise, when they do devise manuals, reflect the same things. So the principles are not just principles they're espousing. We know that there's a lot in common among analytic therapists by um, what they say they do, what they're observed to do, what they abstract in their manuals. It's consistent, and it fits broad analytic theory. And they, there are things that where there may be minor differences between schools, 
The bulk of it is the same across schools. Like, we don't come in with structured questions and do a structured interview. We listen open-endedly to what people say, which gives them room, call it free association or whatever you want to call it, gives them room to express themselves. You say resistance. One of the main findings is that analytic therapists listen for affect, for emotion, and pay particular attention to the defenses against it. How is it kept out? Traditional idea of resistance. They pay all analytic therapists, not relational, not modern, not Freudian, not Jungian, all <coughs> analytic therapists listen for patterns from the past, what's happening in the world on the outside, what's happening in the transference in the relationship, and try and form patterns among them. So analytic therapists are, are listening for the themes in, in the life, particularly around affective issues and the defenses against them. That's a heck of a lot of common ground that we have in common. Now, we may disagree. One school may say, put more emphasis on the here and now, and the other one puts a little more emphasis on the past. But they're both looking at both looking at patterns there. My point is, there's a lot of rich common ground of what all analytic schools have in common. I think that it makes sense for us to balance our fights and disagreements with a recognition of how much common ground there is. In terms of um, the other question is, of course, a huge question because it has to do with really explaining the fundamental premises of relational psychoanalysis. It's really, and so what I'll do there is just give you one example of the nuance, and I encourage you on this to look at my first book, The Meeting of Minds. The whole purpose of that book was when, when you said that you know it, it's not all mutual work, the whole purpose of that book was to do a detailed study of what do we mean by mutual and to see that some things are mutual and some things are not. For example, we differentiate mutual regulation, two people influencing each other, from mutual recognition of two people recognizing each other as separate subjects. That's different from mutual generation of associations and data which is different from mutual resistances that we're locked in. Each kind of mutuality has to be studied separately and has to be weighed against asymmetry. The idea that there's a difference in power between the patient and the analyst, they're there for different reasons, different functions, different goals, different purposes. My answer is simply to say, this is an enormously complex and subtle point about, is everything mutual? Is it mutually constructed? I would say, mutual what? And the book, the first book, is an effort to look in some detail at the nuances of all those different kinds of mutuality. So these are not simple matters. This is the kind of thing that we could take, you know, years to explore. I have a question. Um, Tracy, now that you've had a chance to read the book and speak with Karen and Lou, I want to bring the tilt back to psychotherapy for the people. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, now that you've had a chance to really, you know, sort of open that up and hear a lot of details from each of them. What, I'm not sure. What, what, it, what it means for you or what, what your understanding of that being the major or premise of the book, which has come up so I guess 
question. Um, but I think what you're asking is having listened to the authors um, further elaborate on their ideas, um, uh, do I have a different take? No, just your take. Oh, my take? Well, I, I, mean, I like the book. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's a, very, it's, a it's a challenging book. It's an interesting book. I mean, I think there's many. The book is so damn rich. It like has so many veins. This is like my sense of reading. I was like, well, there's, I mean, there's two chapters which we didn't discuss, right? I mean, just, you know, there's only so much time. And there's a, uh, which I heard um, Lou give at the Division 39, Freud, Farenzi, Schraber, Three Wandering Jews. Which is a which is a brilliant and lovely, amazing chapter that I think just stands on its own and is worth a read um, on the tensions um, between Freud and Ferenczi and their um, Ferenczi's desire for recognition by Freud and Freud's distanciation. I mean, it's really something else. Um, then there's the incredibly exciting chapter, which I think you guys have presented on, which is you know, the um, female gender. Gender simulation, Dr. Hanlon mentioned it to me in fact right at the beginning, right before we got started about that chapter, which is incredible, which is really completely fascinating. It's original historical uh, research. So, um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a vast book. I mean, I could have taken any number of paths through it. You know, there are very many paths one could take through, through a book that's doing as much as this, this book is doing. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Chantel, could you, would you mind to pass the, what do you thought? Uh, in relation to um, the topic of psychoanalysis, what's your name? Sarah Schechtel. I'm a modern analyst affiliated with the center. And in relation to the theme of um, psychoanalysis for the people, uh, Adler, certainly, there were many, as you know, many of those early analysts, Adler and Bill O'Brien, and I think. Uh, Others were, were leftists, and they certainly wanted psychoanalysis for the people. Now, I want to do a little bit of the history of psychoanalysis. The war was traumatic, it was a horrible trauma. And this, what happened to these analysts who were uh, the refugees, some of them went to England, some of them came to America, and they, they were heartbreaking, the, the exchanges, because England could absorb just so many, and uh, the states, uh, there was only one institution, New York Psychoanalytic, and Brill was an incredibly controlling individual. And to my mind, the problem was not the trauma before, but the medicalization of psychoanalysis. These psychoanalysts at New York Psychoanalytic absolutely defied when totally against what Freud stood for. They rejected the death instinct. They rejected the paper on the analysis. They rejected so many of these things. Uh, Nunberg wrote uh, uh, on uh, developed a new theory of ecology. The way of killing the father was for them to invent their own meta theory, and they did it. Rado split off, and he created Columbia. And he, too, he was very socially oriented. Uh, Karen Hornheim would be in psychoanalytic established her institute, and she was furious with Freud about feminist issues. So I think that it was the, the most serious problem, really, was the medicalization 
the psychoanalysis. I mean, there are wars all the time, there are conflicts all the time, but that manipulation is what destroyed psychoanalysis and stood in its way. Can I make a comment about that? So, um, from reading this, my understanding is that real, actually, that medicalization was stimulated by prejudice in, in this way. So he uh, decided to go study with Freud some and came back home and he was very excited to want to bring back psychoanalysis. The only psychiatrists in New York were lost. He was the only Jewish person. And so it said that he felt if, um, in order to sell psychoanalysis, he had to change a lot of it, including getting rid of all the analysts, and change a lot of psychoanalysis so that it would be accepted by the office. Even that, so even that I, I think it, we, we don't, I don't think we can go into it in much more detail other than to say that I do hope both of you will look at the book. There are at least three or four chapters specifically on the relationship between the medicalization of psychoanalysis, the development of medicine <coughs> in this country, the development of psychiatry within medicine, the development of psychoanalysis within psychiatry, the relationship of this to both Judaism and to men and women, uh, it's carefully traced. Dr. Kellen, did you have a question? I've been waiting a long time. Dr. Kerman, ask a question better than more likely than I was going to do. Thank you, Judge. But I, I still, just briefly, uh, my analysis consider the counter-transference subjective and objective. We know we have biases and we relate to the therapist. And even though classical analysis was considered one person analysis and then one person delivery, modern analysis always been a two-person treatment. So I don't really know the difference between relational therapy and modern analysis. Do you have do you make a distinction between them? For me it seems very similar. For me I've always been modern analysis and relational at the same time and it's never been a conflict for me. Um, you know, pe people integrate and synthesize from a wide range of theories and can integrate and synthesize theories that are sometimes to other people look contradictory. So I don't have any doubt that you pick things that for you work and that it's synthetic. But, if, but we also are hearing that at least some people here don't feel like it's a two-person psychology, don't think that it emphasizes the subjectivity and the subjectivity in the same way. So it seems to me within each school, there's room for some debate about what defines that school, how people work. Um, and that's certainly true, I would, I would say, within the relational community. There are relational analysts who are much closer to British object relations theory. There are relational analysts who are closer to American interpersonal theory. It's a wide range. It's a very broad umbrella. And it seems to me, from what I'm hearing, that that would be true of modern as well. You know, in spot, both say that classical analysis is a one-person theory, but a modern treatment is a relational theory. I, I just want to say that I know Tracy Morgan, 
And what you said earlier is not true. <laughs> <laughs> she's very interested in the analyst subjectivity. When she's the analyst, and in the theory is not. I don't know what point she was trying to make then, but she went a little far out. <laughs> I can get hyperbolic. Are you saying that? One thing I just want to mention um, that I thought was interesting when doing research is that Freud, in his letters to police, talked about a patient that he was treating, a case of male hysteria, that helped him understand his own case of hysteria. Would you call him a relational analyst? Uh, my name is Ken Hector. I just have a question. I think, uh, does your book touch at all on the role of economics in all these uh, <clears throat> fights? We look in the modern times, the haves always want to keep out of the have nots. And we see that when psychologists want to do, let's say, third party payments, the psychiatrists want to get them. Social workers, the same thing happened. Psychoanalysts, also other groups want to keep them out. I'm wondering that it's not just a manifestation of psychoanalysis. It's also an economic subtext of all of that. I want the money. <laughs> and I don't want anybody else to have it. Yeah, in, in fact, one of the things I thought of afterwards was that if, if we were doing it over, I think I would have the expression follow the money over several chapters. <laughs> There's, um, I'll give you just one example, but I think this is dramatically underestimated, and, and many of the people that I've spoken with don't know this history, but Karen and I developed this at some length, psychoanalysis played a pivotal role in the move of psychiatry out of the institutions where they were asylum doctors and opening up of private practices. People were largely psychiatrists, the great majority of them up to the 1920s were working in asylums. They were doing custodial care. Largely these were patients who were chronically ill, often old age, uh, senile, often um, syphilitic degeneration, and they were doing custodial work. And all of a sudden, an import from Europe, intellectually rich, intellectually stimulating, in which they can make a living in a private practice, treating patients that can afford to come privately, and who are well enough to actually discuss interesting things, so they have a choice. Well, do I want to stay in the asylum world? Psychoanalysis played a pivotal role in, a, in this complete economic shift in the profession of psychiatry. That's one example of the kind of thing we examine with, with some care. Um, I think we'll take one more uh, question. Jamie so, um, um, Katz. So if just going with the metaphor of the Titanic, psychoanalysis is a sinking ship and the, the bickering whether or not it happened tonight, I'm, I'm not totally clear, is us rearranging the uh, furniture on the deck. So if we, if we stop rearranging the furniture on the deck and all get along and recognize that we have more in common than we disagree, what do we, what do we get out of doing that? Like, does that all of a sudden make psychoanalysis no longer be a sinking ship? Will all of a sudden everyone will be in analysis, everyone will be happy? Or so why should we stop fighting? Maybe it's, maybe it's fun to fight. <laughs> you, you're, you're certainly asking the right guy about liking to fight. <laughs> there's there's, there's no, no question in my mind that a certain amount of the fighting is really healthy and enlivening. You know, the fact that we have the different tracks at NYU 
actually, that's not just so that we can offer a multiple number of theories. It's also because having those tracks sharpens thinking, and that kind of fighting sharpens people's arguments. So I think actually that part is a good thing. Uh, you know, if you want to use the model of dissociation and conflict, it's it's not um, it's not the conflict that I have a problem with. It's where we become so dissociated that we don't read each other's journals, we don't know what we're thinking about each other, we don't benefit from learning from each other. That's the problem. Arguments between us can be very, very healthy. But I want to, I want to, and this may be a good point to kind of reach at the end. I don't see it as a sinking ship. I don't accept that assumption. I think it's in some economic trouble. I think it's changing. It's evolving. I think it's going to sink only in the sense that what it looked like before, <coughs> that's going to be gone. It's going to look different. It's going to transform. It's going to evolve. That's not the same as sinking. People need to be listened to. There is nobody else teaching therapists how to listen to patients in depth. Nobody else teaches that. They teach you how to intervene. They teach you to use techniques. They teach you what to say. They don't teach you how to sit and listen to somebody over a long period of time through a lot of deep emotion. Nobody else teaches that. That's not going away. That's not sinking.